Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustark. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbarth and Kay Royal. The past couple of weeks have been less structured than we had intended when we started season two last month. But as John Lennon already sang, life is what happens to you while making other plans. And sometimes life can be very unkind as both Kay and I have recently experienced. Of course, my big thanks to Ralph O'Brien, who was nice enough to step in as guest co-host in the past two episodes. But now it's back to normal. We'll continue with the episode schedule we had in mind at the beginning of the year, starting right now. This week's episode is just Kay and me catching up, and there is enough catching up to do. If you thought Europe had gone in a winter sleep, think again, because this week... An unexpected breakthrough on e-privacy appeared, as well as the release of two draft adequacy decisions for the UK post-Brexit and post-Schrems 2. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So, Paul, yes, thank you. We have had some movement in the privacy world lately, which kind of surprised me, or maybe it snuck up on me because we're still sitting here at the beginning of the year. Everyone's still kind of hoping 2021 is going to be better than 2020. And yet the world keeps turning. Apparently it does. And even though I well, at least for me and I think for many, it still feels like we're stuck in 2020 (laughs) with the whole COVID situation that hasn't changed. And we're still stuck at home and there is no change there. The weather at least is moving. We had snowstorms and lots of ice suddenly here in the Netherlands that we haven't seen for many years. And this weekend we'll have spring. So it is a 30, <laughs> 30 degrees Celsius difference between last weekend and this weekend. And I think you just ex- escaped from a snowstorm while you live in the south of the U.S. I did. I actually had traveled against my better ideas, but I compete in Mrs. pageants. So I was at the United States of America Mrs. and the nationals were held in San Antonio and epic winter storms came through. I think it was Yuri and Viola maybe came through back to back. Hadn't seen this level of storm since the 1800s and the people still there are trapped in a hotel with no running water, food's running out, electricity's rolling through. It's just absolutely a nightmare. We took a chance and drove out. Took quite a while and it was a little scary, but we took a chance and drove out and I'm glad that we did. Really glad that we did. So we're here. And You're thank goodness because you because Arizona's in like, you know, the 60s and the 70s because, you know, we don't get miserable here. I'm going to say that and we're going to have some sort of weird ice storm come through Arizona. <laughs> All right. Oh, yeah, hold you can on. Bet for that. We let's see. I'm looking for an unexpected question because here's the two that popped up. Where do you find pleasure, which we've already done? And did you leave work on time? <laughs> I think I'm going <laughs> to skip those two. 
The other yeah, one was, I, do you make enough money? I was like, oh, that's fine. I, I don't even think that I leave work any day. But <laughs> Okay, here's one we haven't done yet. What do you like to talk about? Well, there is a whole range of topics. And I mean, I think you know that privacy is one of them and food is one of them and cooking and recipes and things like that. Talking about travel would score pretty high nowadays. And yeah, also talking about my dad is is something I'd like to do quite a lot at the moment. Yeah, I think ditto, ditto. We can skip the cooking part. Ditto, ditto and ditto. <laughs> It's strange how our lives align at the moment, even though we've only known each other for just over a year, worked together for just over a year, and we've been through so much together already. It's, it's almost insane. I do like talking about my children, my grandchildren, and my pets. So, And we're going to find a whole bunch more things to talk about. <laughs> but let's start with privacy, because I think this is still a privacy podcast. We'll Let's do it. What do you want to start out with? The uh, sudden agreement in council under the... Uh, do that because that's been in the making for quite a long time. I think that's also been four years of negotiations by now. Right. It was originally the intention that e-privacy, the regulation, would kick in on the same day as the GDPR. So that is the 25th of May, 2018, almost three years ago. And the end is not in sight yet because this is just the agreement between the member states. The European Parliament was very quick. They had an agreement on their position, I think six months after the draft was out. And if we had followed their timeline, it still would have been possible to have had e-privacy by the GDPR deadline. But the member states couldn't agree. And Go figure. subsequent... EU presidency, so the member states who, who hold the chair of, of the European Union, they have tried to come up with compromises. And finally, now it was Portugal that managed to, to, to get a deal. So we see that the council has reached agreement on a text that deviates quite a bit from the European Parliament's position. And that's why I also say there is still a long way to go. There is a very big divide between the two where the council seems to have been impacted quite a lot by the lobby machine from the industry. And the European Parliament really takes a, a fundamental rights position at its core. So to bridge those positions, we will go to the trilogue, which is the three-party negotiation between the European Commission, the member states and the European Parliament. And that can take many more months, if not many years. Right. And a lot of people miss or I can't say miss, they don't think or they don't realize that there is an e-privacy directive that I don't know that it's intended to supplement the GDPR, given that it was kind of in place before. Well, not the regulation, but the directive, but that it's still something they need to follow. Mm -hmm. And currently, the e-privacy directive does not follow the GDPR. It is um, opposed. And there's been previous drafts that the drafts for the regulation also did not align with the GDPR. So not completely. And it, that also makes sense to some extent, because they are dealing with different fundamental rights. E-privacy is about the communication secret. It is about keeping your communications online private. And there is, of course, a big link to privacy and data protection. That is also why it is regarded as a lex specialis to the general data protection regulation, 
or as in the past, the e-privacy directive was a lex specialis to the data protection directive 9546. So the the e-privacy rules still apply under the old regime, which has been implemented in national law in the member states. So it is not aligned EU-wide, but the fundamentals are the same. And for most people, what they will know about e-privacy is the cookie directive part. The pop-up banners that require cookie consent, explicit consent for everything that happens in your browser, on your machine. And it is not just about cookies. It's also about other tracking technology. But there is more to e-privacy than just that. It is also keeping your email secret, making sure that your billing records are properly secured, all of that kind of information. And as we spoke about last year in in my favorite topic episode, also data retention was part of e-privacy. So the storage and then subsequent use for law enforcement purposes of telecommunications metadata. And that whole discussion is now back on the table. The metadata element seems to be a huge piece of disagreement among people of what private companies can do, what they can keep, everything like that. So I expect that we're going to start seeing some pretty significant movement in the e-privacy regulation, which will be really good. I don't know that everyone's going to necessarily like what the outcome is going to be, but I think it'd be really good to have it settled and have something on the table that we need to work with. Well, you know, I'm not so sure at the moment if the council draft is the draft to prevail then probably I, I prefer to keep the old legislation in combination with the GDPR because there is a lot of criticism on this e-privacy draft from the council. And I think a lot of that criticism is fair if you look at it from the fundamental rights perspective. One of the German commissioners, Ulrich Kelbo, we had on the podcast last year, he warned that there is a risk that this regulation would fall below what is foundational to data protection rights. One of my former colleagues, Shuhan Nas, who wrote an extensive blog on the risks involved in, 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 in this whole new draft from the council, and especially if you look at that data retention issue, it seems that the council just ignores all the case law from the Court of Justice of the European Union about massive and unrestricted data collection. And it is not just one case, but by now it's six or seven cases, including the ones from last year against Belgium, France, and the United Kingdom, the Privacy International and Quadratio Net cases that we discussed as well. So I'm not so sure that the council position is the best way to move forward. Maybe the European Parliament can get it up to scratch, but that will take a lot of negotiations. And speaking of negotiations, let's segue straight over to the the adequacy decisions, although it's not a final adequacy decision for the UK. No, it's, it's not. Draft, it is the draft right? decision. And there are actually two draft decisions because there is one under the GDPR. So that is for all regular data transfers for government activities as well as commercial activities. But for the first time, the European Commission has also proposed draft adequacy for the law enforcement context, which is, of course, something that the United Kingdom really wanted because they want to be able to continue to exchange information on fighting crime and fighting terrorism with the law enforcement agencies across the European Union, which makes sense. But this is a first. And where in the past we saw usually a handful of pages and then four or five articles as the basis for an adequacy decision. Right now, we have 88 pages for the GDPR and 51 pages for the law enforcement decision, all with explanations on why this would be a good idea, all with analysis of the UK legal framework. 
the UK legal practice, the oversight mechanisms that exist, the redress mechanisms that exist. And that is, of course, all to do with the Schrems II decision. I think about half of the general adequacy decision under the GDPR relates to government access to personal information, to the government surveillance, to the investigatory powers tribunal and other oversight mechanisms that exist in the United Kingdom. So really trying to dig deep into the criticism that the European Court of Justice had on the US system and trying to avoid that they would come up with similar criticism for the United Kingdom. As you mentioned, this is still a draft, or these are still drafts, and the European Data Protection Board shall give their opinion. I was going to um, say, yeah, and, this isn't a draft like the UK has to do anything else. It's no. a draft decision that now goes in front of the board for the board to issue the final opinions. Uh, and also the member states are allowed to give advice. Okay, sorry, non-binding opinion. Yeah, it's non-binding. And that is that is a problem in itself. As some members of the European Parliament have already commented, it, it seems like this will be more of a political decision, or it might be more of a political decision than a legal decision based on the merits of the analysis. While that might be a bit too quick, because the Commission clearly has put a lot of effort into the analysis. I haven't read it in full detail, let alone multiple times as I usually do. I would have usually thought you would have had it memorized by now. No, it's only been out for four hours, so I oh, haven't on. been able to do that, unfortunately. But the Commission has made a serious effort, that is clear. But we'll have to wait and see what the European Data Protection Board says and what they will do. We know from past situations that the Commission can ignore criticisms from the board or the Working Party 29, which happened in the Privacy Shield discussion, which happened for the Japan adequacy decision. But we don't know what happens here. Of course, post Schrems 2, the world is a little different. So it might be that also the European Commission will take the advice of the board more seriously. And then of I course- I hope so, because we've, we've seen some, I can't say disagreement necessarily, but different approaches than what we've expected. Well, there are quite a few rifts, I would say. Yeah, has been interesting. Can't they all just be friends? Well, they are friends, but they <laughs> just don't fully agree on the merits of all these legal discussions, I guess. <laughs> oh my goodness. So more to come. Now, how long will we expect that to take? I know that the UK is hoping this will move fast. It has to move fast because there is another legal deadline by the 30th of June, which is when the, the new transition agreement on data protection expires, oh. or actually already at the end of April, but it can be extended with yet and again two months. But there is no further extension possible after the 30th of June. Okay. So I think the commission hopes that by then we will see an agreement and the adequacy decision would then be valid for four years and for no more. We and saw in the past that the adequacy decisions were valid indefinitely. The Japan adequacy decision was already a change there where the review was made explicit, as is the case in the GDPR. But now the commission has also said, no, this expires unless we explicitly extend it. And that is also to keep the pressure on the United Kingdom to keep their legislation aligned with the EU. In the past, we saw that Boris Johnson and also his government ministers have commented that they may very well deviate from European law if that makes them more attractive to do business, to align their data protection regime more with the US and less with the EU approach of fundamental rights. And this is a clear warning from the European Commission. If you do that, you will not maintain your adequacy status. Right. And I think for 
the other countries that they have, it's my impression they are not going to go back and impose a a deadline for re-review, but they are reviewing them, such as Canada's review for adequacy is coming up. And so I imagine others will as well, even though they don't necessarily have a, an expiration date in their current adequacy decision. No, but they have a mandatory review date. And that, that mandatory review is also four years. So I guess that's why the commission chose four years for the expiration. So by the latest 25 May next year in 2022, all the old adequacy decisions predating GDPR will need to be reviewed as well. Right. And I think the countries under those, some of them are showing a little bit of worry and mm-hmm. and upping their legislation and changing it to more align. As we talked about Canada's proposed legislation in a previous episode, that they are bringing theirs much more in alignment with enhanced privacy rights, appeal rights, the ability to enforce penalties or fines on people. So we're seeing a lot of legislation go that direction, which is much more in alignment. I believe also that we're starting to see a lot more of enforcement actions actually come through. And that brings to mind some of the enforcement actions that we've seen recently come out of Europe that have made headlines. I mean, there was a big one we just saw in Italy. I believe it was with Facebook. That was actually pretty surprising. Yeah, and this was not so it was a privacy case, but it was not the privacy supervisor who who ruled in this case. This was actually the Consumers and Markets Authority that imposed a 7 million euro fine against Facebook for allegedly misleading conduct on data protection by not properly informing users on how they collect and use data for commercial purposes. And earlier, they had already been fined 5 million euros in 2018, also for unfair commercial practices. So it is interesting. We've we've heard before that consumers and markets authorities are stepping up their game also when it comes to misleading information on privacy and data protection. Obviously, we've been aware from that from the US, where the only possibility for the Federal Trade Commission to act on privacy issues would be for unfair and deceptive practices. But that is now also being taken on in in Europe. And I think that is only a very positive development. Might be hard for companies and you might say, well, it it contradicts a little the the one-stop shop mechanism under the GDPR. At the same time, while we see that the DPAs are swamped, I think it is a good way that also other supervisory authorities step in if they have the powers to do so. Right. And here in the United States, we actually have law moving a little bit as well. We don't do a whole lot of talking about HIPAA and and other things because we in privacy seem to be more enthralled by what's going on in other countries. But here in the United States, HIPAA is actually making a few moves that is really interesting. We spoke a few months ago briefly about the new information blocking rule that was coming out that if medical providers did not provide individuals with the right of access in a good way, in a meaningful, timely way, then they could actually get in trouble and information blocking. It doesn't actually provide directly to providers. It applies to providers. The penalties don't apply to providers. The penalties would come through another legal mechanism, but it does apply to electronic medical record providers and tech companies. Now there's a couple of others that have come out. They have a cybersecurity safe harbor that specifically states that the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services shall consider whether the companies, covered entities, or business associates 
have adequately demonstrated that for the past 12 months, they have recognized security practices in place. And this can mitigate the fines. This can result in favorable early termination of any audits they might be under. And it can also mitigate the remedies that might otherwise agree to. But they go further. And this is the interesting part. Recognized security practices specifically mean the standards, guidelines, best practices, methodologies, procedures, and processes developed under blah, blah, the National Institute for Standards and Technology. So it means NIST. Or it means the ones under the Cybersecurity Act, which there is a big report out by the Cybersecurity Act Task Force that I don't know very many people that pay a whole lot of attention to it, but it's out there and it has guides and it's actually very, very good. Or or any other programs or processes that address cybersecurity and that are developed, recognized, or promulgated through regulations under other statutory authorities, which might let out ISO. Because hmm. ISO is not developed, recognized, or promulgated through regulations. No, that's so, completely independent. But if NIST is included, that is a, a very positive step. Would exactly. it then include both the privacy and the security set or just the security set? Uh, well, it says it says security practices. So they probably are addressing security, but having the privacy in there, I mean, as well would be really good. I just thought that was really interesting that. HIPAA is letting out. Now, here's the thing. Since it's not a requirement, there's no penalty for companies that don't do it. There's just a reward, potential reward for companies that do. So right now it's not required. This is a carrot. Exactly. And so it, it goes through, which I think is really interesting. The Cybersecurity Act actually has guides out there for small organizations, goes through the basic pillars that you would imagine would be there. But there are a few other things that we've talked about that has happened with HIPAA. For example, the enforcement latitude that they have in order for if you had to use a business associate during the time of COVID and you didn't have time to do your due diligence or put the agreements in place, that's fine. There's been waivers of others where they've had so public health emergencies, they're able to put in certain waivers of enforcement which is pretty interesting, can only happen if it's in an emergency. And right now they've had, I think, four or five enforcement discretions where they've done online or web-based scheduling applications for COVID vaccination appointments, enforcement discretion for community-based testing sites, enforcement discretion for using them with business associates, as we talked about, and for telehealth, being able to deliver telehealth. So This enforcement discretion means that even if you violated HIPAA through these actions, because of the public health emergency, the need to get the care to people, they have the discretion whether or not to issue penalties or not. Doesn't mean you you do it willy-nilly, but it does mean it gives the providers some latitude. And they've issued a lot of guidance. Some of the other things here in the United States that have happened, specifically when it comes to HIPAA, there's not a whole lot of activity for waivers or exceptions under Graham-Leach-Bliley, the financial, or under FERPA, the education. But there is a safe harbor for cybersecurity tech donations. So apparently companies want to donate technology, whether it's software or hardware, to healthcare companies through COVID, but yet there's all these anti-kickback and stark Mm. laws about how you can pay or not pay. 
So there is a safe harbor for cybersecurity tech donations. And that's something that's temporary or is that indefinite duration? It is a, I believe this one is a definite, you know, funny enough, I don't know that part. I believe this one is not necessarily temporarily, but I believe where it applies to, it would actually be considered temporarily once the COVID goes through, but the law itself would stay on the book. So if something else similar happened again, I believe it would also kick in. But it's the anti-kickback statute and the Stark law that both have this donation. They're pretty much identical, but there are some differences between them. But there's no limitation on who's a donor or who's a recipient. There's flexibility on whether or not you have a, what kind of written agreement you have in place. There has to be a written agreement, but they don't specify exactly what it has to be. It could just be an email. Exactly. It just has to be written. It has to be the donor does not directly take into account the volume of value of referrals or any other business. It, the recipient cannot require the donation as a condition of doing business, and the arrangement has to be documented in writing, whatever that writing looks like. Anti-kickback adds a little bit more to it, but that's really interesting. And then we talked about the information blocking or mentioned it. I'm not giving tons of detail here, but the other is there is right now a proposed, revi- a proposed revision to the right of access. And this is what made me think of HIPAA when you mentioned it earlier, because they have uh, HIPAA has always had individual rights since Mm -hmm. it passed in 1996. And IP address has always been part of the individual's data under protected health information. But they just put out proposed revisions. I think comment may have just closed, including a shortened time frame to respond to individuals. I think it goes to 15 days from 30 reduces identity verification requirements. It strengthens the individual's right to access in person and specifically says, including how they can take notes or capture the meeting using recorders or things like that, which most doctors can't stand. There are express disclosures to telecommunication relay services saying, yes, you have to be able to disclose to that for people who are hard of hearing. It eliminates a signing that you received a notice to privacy practices because people don't like to sign that anyway. But there are pages and pages and pages of other things, all of it strengthening a person's right to access to their protected health information. So HIPAA is following along with a lot of other laws that are increasing individual rights. They already had the right. Now they're just increasing the availability of it. And I believe it was I would say last year, but last year was in COVID. So I think last year before COVID, the Department of Health and Human Services put out guidance saying that covered entities and business associates were to stop putting hoops in front of people in order for them to get their access. So as long as the person made it clear that they wanted access to their data, they were clear as to what the data was, you couldn't keep making them run through all these useless steps just because it's a process you put in place. Here, sign this form, do this. Oh, I'm a business associate. You got to go to the covered entity, not my business, things like that. So just make sure that it happens. There was a direct order. You must make this easy on people. And so now they're going to make that part of the law and you're going to have to make it easy on people. So are these? So we're seeing changes here too. Yeah. Are these changes the first 
touch of Xavier Becerra as new secretary for HHS? Or is this still coming from, from the old administration? And are we yet to see what he will bring to the table to further enforce HIPAA? You know, there may be some influence there on the proposed revisions to the right of access, but I have a feeling all of these were still already bubbling up. Most of these were coming through the air, coming up anyway. They've already been issued in the drafts. We're already seeing them. So it is the prior administration. However, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more coming out of it as well. And uh, one of my friends was actually just appointed to a wonderful position in the federal government here. And I was excited to see that. So knowing that we've got so many changes coming in people that are in positions of authority and decision-making is very exciting to a lot of us. But frankly, a lot of this was already through the prior administration. So that's fantastic. That's a good, that's a good start of this year. And I'm very curious to see what, what further will happen. I mean, let's not forget the inauguration was only a month ago. Yeah, barely. It feels like months and months ago. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it all seems so normal nowadays if you look at the U.S. news. <laughs> it does. And what's interesting is I had friends in other countries ask me that when they see the news of things that are happening here in the United States with the administration, it's never just President Biden. It's always Biden and Harris. Biden and Harris did this, Biden and Harris did that. And they asked if that's what we're seeing here in the U.S. as well. Does, do we see so many things as a team rather than the president? And I said, funny enough, when it comes to all the executive orders that he signed the first few days in, it was always President Biden. But I started paying attention and they're right. Most of what we're seeing about this new administration and activities, it's a team. It's Biden and Harris. C'est le doing ton it. Qui fait la musique. Yeah. It's a different tone of voice and that matters a lot. It is. And we don't know if the stress on that is because we have the first woman vice president or if it's the first person of color or if it really is that they really are just that much of a team. It wouldn't surprise me if it is the latter, because I recall from reading the Obama biography, at least the first volume that is out now, that he also described how he worked as a team with Joe Biden and that Joe Biden stipulated when he became vice president or when he became the running mate for Barack Obama, that he would always want to be the last person in the room before the decision was made. And it seems like they work like that. And probably because he liked working like that, he is paying that forward to his vice president, or at least so I'd like to think. I like that. That's, that's a really good note and probably a good note for us to end on. We deviated quite a lot from privacy again. <laughs> But I also had someone tell us, you know, y'all should talk about something other than privacy. And I'm sitting here going, but it's a privacy podcast. Oh, well, we'll deviate every once in a while. Paul and I will sneak some other things in. We promise we'll talk about some other things that aren't quite as bad. Well, more pride is good or quite as exciting as privacy. There's not much more quite as exciting as privacy, I don't believe. But yes, we're trying to stick to our promise. Everyone, not everyone, but we heard comments that people would lo love listening to us while they're doing certain chores or while they are doing their exercise in the morning. And going for 50 or 55 minutes was a little bit too long to be running or too long to be walking their dog. So we're trying to be shorter. And so with that, Paul, I think we're going to sign off for today because we've got a lot of things moving and they're exciting and we love it. And we have some exciting guests coming up. So 
Absolutely. Right Thank you all for listening to another episode of Serious Privacy, a regular one this time. If you like our series, please do tell your friends and colleagues about us and rate and review our episodes in your favorite podcast application. Should you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to reach out uh, via Serious Privacy at TrustArc.com or via Twitter at, at Podcast Privacy. You will find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as Europol B. And of course, don't hesitate to reach out if you want to be a guest. For now, until next week, thank you for listening and goodbye. Welcome back, Paul. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because they're... Deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesi Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions. <laughs>